Well, good morning. I'm so excited about being back in the uh, minor prophet Habakkuk with you um, today. I, I, I like to, at some point, weave into any conversation about um, speaking from a book of prophecy in the Old Testament with the definition of what the role of the prophet was, because I think we can sometimes get um, a little bit like starry-eyed and confused and dazed and almost excited about the fact that these guys were going to tell us the future. Uh, and ultimately, that's not always uh, the primary role of the prophet. In, in Old Testament scripture, that was an office that was held really right from the beginning, starting way back with like Eli and Samuel. Well, even before that, the ju- oh, even before that, Moses was designated as a prophet. And, and the call of God's prophet among people was not to tell them the future, although that was certainly a part of it, especially the parts where, hey, if you don't get your act together, disaster is coming But really the role of the prophet was to tell the people the truth. And if you look through Old Testament history, um, it's oftentimes a really difficult truth to hear. Um, A lot of you may know this about us. Um, So my name is Nick Allen. I'm a discipleship pastor here at Rolling Hills. I've had lots of different jobs here because I've been here for nine years, and um, we just keep trying to find one that works for me. And so um, here I am, and before we moved to Tennessee nine years ago to work at Rolling Hills and to be a part of this body, um, Susan and I tried a little tiny stint of being Floridians. And so we were living there for a couple of years, and there's some stark differences between living in Florida and living somewhere other than Florida. And so while we were there, we noticed that, wow, every single neighborhood, including ours, just this whole like hub of condominiums, is always surrounded by lakes, like these little beautiful ponds of water. What we called lakes was really just a retention pond so that the area didn't flood, okay? So retention ponds. But they all had these fancy fountains in the middle to kind of like spit back up these beautiful displays of water, and it was really fun to like live there and see that. But then we also came to realize that the fancy fountain in the middle was just a way of keeping the reclaimed water circulating so that it didn't smell so bad, okay? So here we are, walking around the lake at our condominium complex, taking the dog on little journeys so that she can, well, didn't really plan on going there, um, do what dogs do. And when we're walking around the lake, it was not uncommon for us to see the occasional, like I wish I could say alligator and just like blow people's minds, but I'm not. I'll just say water moccasin. Okay, and water moccasins, unlike other snakes, like people will tell you, oh yeah, the snake is more afraid of you than you are of it. I beg to differ. Like, there is no fear that the snake could possibly have that would outweigh the fear that I have of it, particularly in the case of a water moccasin, because those jokers are aggressive and will attack you. And so we're walking around the retention pond, the lake, one afternoon, and Molly's just, I don't know, slowly taking care of whatever dogs need to take care of, and right out of the grass, sunbathing near some rocks, a water moccasin darts its nasty little head and jumps at us. And I, in that moment, take off running as fast as I can. And I'm like breathing really heavily, running up some stairs, hoping that he can't. And just having a total, like blood pressure is higher then than it is now, even though I've had 32 ounces of coffee this morning. Okay, like literally freaking out about this water moccasin. And I'm relaying this story back to Susan later on. And I'm saying, you wouldn't believe the water moccasin. He's like darted at me. And he went up straight up. She said, but what did you do about Molly? Susan, focus. I knew in that moment I didn't have to run faster than the water moccasin. I just had to go faster than the cocker spaniel. I'm in a book of Habakkuk. 
And I'm trying to find, like I'm looking alongside you, trying to find the glimmer of hope that's there. And when we're holding on to it, literally by a thread, what we have to realize is that our hope doesn't have to outpace our problem. Our faith does. Habakkuk has a dilemma. How do you have faith when what you should obviously have is fear? Because there are some things in life worth being scared of because they're scary. How do you have faith when the God of this universe seems to be silent? And Israel knew periods of silence from the Lord, times when he didn't seem to be saying anything new through the prophets. In fact, one came after the minor prophets, the book of the 12, of which Habakkuk is one of them. I learned it in a song like, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And then the next tagline for that part of the song is, 400 years go by, because there's an intertestamental period where essentially God is remaining silent. He's not all the time just blowing it up at the dinner table, telling us things that we want to hear all the time, and his word gives us a lot of what he said and a lot of what matters, but there are moments in life when you're listening, but God may not be clearly speaking. And so how do you maintain faith in the moments of radio silence? And how do you maintain faith when the obstacles are great? Because the obstacles in moments like this are big. They are difficult. And we never come as a Bible-believing, Christ-professing audience of people and want to minimize the fact that we all have problems in life. This can't be a church where we come and say, oh, once you come to Jesus and you have a saving faith in him, then all your problems magically disappear because we know that that's not true. And that's not evidenced by any of the stories that we find in scripture. And it's not evidenced by any of the stories that I could tell you about my life. And it's not evidenced by any of the stories that, that, I'm hap- that I happen to know about yours. Just because we have faith doesn't mean that the obstacles go away. Habakkuk had a real dilemma And there's some reminders that we've kind of covered throughout this series, and I want to hit them again today because they're important and they matter, and we're going to hit them again next week as we close out the series because the name Habakkuk means to wrestle or to embrace, and we have to be prepared as a people to do both of those things. We have to wrestle with the truth of God's, but ultimately we have to get to a place where we embrace the truth that are God's. They belong to Him, and it's okay to wrestle. We have to get to a point where we embrace them. The word oracle at the outset of this book, the oracle that came through Habakkuk, that word literally means burden. And this was a tough word. And this was a difficult burden to carry. We talked about in the first week, and I reiterated it last week when I was at the Nolansville campus, that things in life do not have to feel good in order to be good. And understanding what God is doing is not a prerequisite to giving him our trust. In fact, most of the time, we're invited, mm, that's not a good word, we're kind of ordered by scripture and, and people who want to be obedient to God through it. Like, we're kind of ordered to give God our trust even when we don't get it and before we're even capable of getting it and before he'll reveal to us all the things that he wants us to get. We are to be a people who don't hold back our trust until he explains himself. God of the universe doesn't have to. We are to be a people who give him our trust 
even when we don't understand it. I have a confession for you today. I don't just believe in God. Oh, no. Somebody thinks he's about to go all pluralist on us and tell us there's more one way to heaven. Nope, not going to do that. But I don't just believe in God. I also believe in an enemy of God who wants to destroy the things of God in us. I don't have a problem looking around the world or even looking back in my life at my own story and seeing the handiwork of God and knowing that he's there and knowing that he exists and knowing that he won't leave me and knowing that he can be trusted. But I'm also never surprised by the sneak attacks of an enemy who wants to destroy us and who wants to diminish our faith in God when we have tough circumstances. I know that when evil comes in the world and when it's on display and when the Chaldeans overtook the nation of Judah, it was authored by God and God alone. And in that moment, the enemy wanted nothing more than to whisper into the ears of the people, you see how the Babylonians came? God can't be trusted. You see how they took your homes? He's not with you. You, you, you see how they took your children and warped your lives? He doesn't love you. The enemy wants nothing more than to take our circumstances and to twist them around his finger and challenge us and the faith that we so desperately want to bring to God. Today we're in the book of Habakkuk and we're chapter 2 and Laura explains today already that if Habakkuk chapter 1 is bad, Habakkuk chapter 2 is worse. It, it, it does certainly seem that way. You finished up the very beginning of Habakkuk chapter 2 last week and God told Habakkuk to write down a vision and that it would wait to be patient because it would come. And then he pronounced ruin on the Babylonians and said that the righteous would live by faith. And then the remainder of the chapter explains to us what it is that characterizes the life of the unrighteous and what it would be that would befall him. And so we pick back up today. I'll start with verse 5, and we'll move right through the end of the chapter. What we're going to experience in here is a series of woes. A series of woes in Scripture, and it's really written like a song. Some of your Bible, instead of woe, it may say the word sorrow, and that's certainly a portion of the word woe, but the biblical definition is more than that. The word woe in Hebrew is pronounced hoy, like hoy, um, and it's more than just an expression of feeling in the moment. It literally means, ah, alas, oh. It, it's, it's a feeling or an expression that really doesn't have words to go along with it, but it's more than just that, because the word woe throughout history, particularly pertaining to the book of Revelation and the end times, really means the announcement of a coming judgment. So it's not just woe, oh, ouch, but it's woe, something is coming. And so we pick back up with verse 5 today. It says, moreover, okay, the righteous shall live by faith. However, the righteous shall live by faith. But listen to this, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And this is a description of the Chaldeans. 
the army that's moving in from the east to overtake first the Assyrians who had already overtaken Israel and now moving into the land of Judah to ransack God's holy city. And if you were with us this summer as we talked about the book of Daniel, you know that that's exactly what happened. King Jehoiakim of Judah made a treaty with Nebuchadnezzar hoping to spare his own life, but what he realized is that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in and destroy everything, including the temple that, that the people loved, the temple that housed the God that bore their name. And in verse 6 it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and, and this taunt, some of your Bible translations say taunt song, like a hyphenated word, because this right here is really meant to be sung out loud. And when you go through this, if we read with me right now the rest of 6 through 20, you're thinking, oh my word, how is this a song? Why would a song sound so bad? Well, I googled this week. The 20 meanest songs of all time. And I'm happy that I didn't recognize all of them, um, but I did notice um, You're So Vain by Carly Simon. That was one of them. Um, you Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. You could have guessed that that one was going to be on the list because, whew, I think all, it probably could have just been her entire soundtrack because all of those songs are mean. Cry Me a River by Justin Timberlake, which I toyed with the idea of just kind of humming and singing for a moment, but I figured since I had already done the Bible book song, you didn't need to see that twice. Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen. Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, made popular by Meatloaf. And Go Your Own Way by Fleetwood Mac, which is such a catchy tune, but when you listen to, actually listen to the lyrics, that's one mean song. There are mean songs, but none of them hold a candle to the one that we're about to read. In verse 6, the quotation is, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. That's a reference to greed that we just read about in verse 5. For how long? And he loads himself with pledges. That was the debts of the people because when the Chaldeans would come and they would overtake a group of people, they would allow them to live there and still do their jobs, but they would cause them to pay such heavy taxes that they couldn't possibly live in the community. It's like, yeah, we're going to let you live here, but this is our land now, so you owe us all of this money. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and all the remnant of all the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is good news to Habakkuk because to the Chaldeans who've taken everything, God is saying, hey, whoa, your time's coming and all the people that you've oppressed are gonna rise up and overtake you. In verse 9, we get to the second woe, and it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. This woe, it's about greed. This woe is taking the desire to control that we experienced in the first woe to a brand new level. How often... Do we have such a strong desire to control an outcome that we're willing to manipulate the circumstances? How often do we as a people allow our greed to motivate us and our desire for the next upgrade get the best of us in life? John Piper, my favorite quote is that when everybody in the world is after the finer things in life, we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to redefine what is finer we're not to be the people who have the most. We're not to be the people who have the best. We ultimately want to be a people who are characterized by outdoing one another with our generosity. 
We don't want the character trait to be of us that we have the most or that we look the best or that we are the best. We want to have the character trait that we are the meekest and we are the most humble and we are the most generous. I had a little issue this week with my daughters because they did the not it game, really, you know, right, with me. Like, I just said, hey, girls, who will help me do this? And it was Thursday night when Susan was here um, participating in the If Women's Gathering, which was fantastic, by the way, all the men at home just sitting there jealous because we couldn't be here, but we knew that everything went so well. And, and, and I'm doing some tasks, and we're trying to get out the door because I've got a place to be, and we're getting them dropped off the childcare, and there's a whole lot. Hey, girls, who will help me with this? And I got the, not me. And I said, whoa, I don't care if we're late. This is going to be a teachable moment. You girls don't need to argue over who has to do the chore. I need to see you arguing over who gets to do the chore. I would rather you outdo each other to do the shotgun of service in our life. Shotgun, I got it. No problem, Dad. I'll cover this. I want to raise kids who, who literally argue with one another over who gets to be the helper, over who gets to be the most generous. And in this passage, that was certainly not the characteristics of the Chaldeans because they were arguing over who got the biggest plot of land when they overtook Judah. Who got to take home the most slaves when they started charging taxes and the people couldn't possibly pay it. They were people that were characterized by their greed, certainly not their service. In verse 12, it says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts the people's labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you know, the earth is made of a lot of water. So that's a whole lot of knowledge of God. And this says, woe to a people who bring violence. Woe to a people who shed blood. And you and I in our lifetime have not known much of that. Not much on our soil. But our entire lifetime has been riddled with news stories from around the globe where violence literally characterizes the everyday life of so many of the seven plus billion people on this planet that were created in the image of God. They know nothing but violence, bloodshed, tyranny, disorder, Woe to him who builds a town with blood. Woe to him who brings nothing but violence. And right there at the end of 14, with the knowledge of the glory of word, that, that word knowledge is yadah in Hebrew. It appears over 900 times in the Old Testament. And any word that appears more than 50 is a word that we ought to look at and say, wow, this is an important word. It matters that we know God. And it matters that we make him known. And it matters that we raise our hands and say, pick me, let me be a part of the way that your knowledge is spread to the rest of the world. Ooh, pick me, God. Let us as a church be part of the reason why your knowledge explodes on this planet, why it's filled up like the water in the sea. Let us be part of the reason why knowledge abounds of Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10 says, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We want to be a reason that people all over the world know his name. Why? So that they can put their trust in him. And when they put their trust in him, they'll see his promises come true. Because, you know, trust isn't a prerequisite. Put our trust in God and then we see his promises 
reign in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9, right after the Shema, the most important command that he gave his people, it says, only give heed. Like, here's a word of caution. The word of caution that follows this, hey, God is one, love him only, pass this down to your children. Here's a warning. Keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. The reason why we're passing on this faith that we have in Jesus is because we want them to know what God has done. And for the Israelites, I look at them and like, what, you saw a sea part? How are you ever going to forget that? But they did. They forgot the miracles that God had worked out to get them to the point of where they moved out of slavery and they were into freedom. And if they could forget that, if they could literally forget the day that they saw water sucked up out of the middle of the earth and make a pathway for them to walk on, if they could forget the day that God rained down every single morning bread that they could gather up in a basket and eat so they'd have food, if they could forget the day that Moses slapped a rock with a stick and water burst up out of it so that they would have something clean to drink, if they could forget every single one of those miracles, then you and I can be a forgetful people too. And we can forget the things that God has done in our lives and forget the things that God has done in other people's lives. And the Old Testament is full of these warning reminders of, hey, don't forget. Know this, yada, and then make it known to the next generation too so that they can know it as well. Our lives and everything in it is to be about the glory of the Lord exposed to the world so that others can know him. And then we get to verse 15, another woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Well, that's weird. We should probably just look at what that really means. It probably means like shame and stupidity because, you know, sometimes, sometimes drunkenness is funny. Be honest, you think that too. But then there's a fine line between funny and sad. There's a fine line between humorous and dangerous. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory, verse 16. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Oh, whoa. That means to the nation of Babylon, show that you don't belong to the Lord. Show your true colors. Show your true nature. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon, they cut down all those beautiful trees, will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to those who cause drunkenness who intoxicate others to their advantage. Now, this is not a literal passage of Scripture that we could apply today. Like, you would have a hard time going through all of Scripture and finding specific moments that cause us to legalistically be teetotalers who abstain from alcohol in all and every form, and that's okay. But you can, in Scripture, make a solid case for the pursuit of holiness— You can make a solid case throughout Scripture for not valuing your liberty over someone else's life. You can make a solid case in Scripture for the responsibility that we have to not cause someone else to stumble. If annually in the United States, and this is a true statistic, 
Alcohol is responsible for more than 100,000 deaths and more than $100 billion in economic losses, like unemployment, loss of productivity, earned wages. Then Christians need to be setting the pace for how we respond to this particular vice. I'm, I'm so thankful that if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you can go online and find it, especially at our Immeasurably More site. Michael Turner sharing a testimony of just how devastating alcohol can be in someone's life. We need more people being honest and willing to share those stories. This is not an explicit case that says, okay, because the Babylonians were crazy, you shouldn't drink. But it, like all of these others, is a reminder for us that we belong to God first and ourselves last. It says, what profit, the, the, the song takes on an interesting turn. This is like the bridge. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. The final woe is the woe of idolatry. And it's a running theme throughout all of the minor prophets, particularly the book of Hosea, when that minor prophet was called to go out into the streets and pick a whore to be his wife. Because when the God of this universe wanted an, a, a metaphor that made sense for people to understand for what their behavior was like and how they pursued all those false idols and how they pursued all the things of the world and how they set their own agenda of what they would worship and what they would value in this life, he decided that the best word picture of that was for a prophet to marry a prostitute. The God of this universe has literally taken up with the likes of us. And so the woe is for anybody who would prioritize anything above God. And then close out this chapter after all of those woes with this specific promise. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Woe to this, 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 and this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. God is assuring Habakkuk, who brought him noteworthy complaints. What in the world is going on in the world? And you're going to bring the Chaldeans, people that are worse than us, to take care of it? God is assuring him that the Chaldeans will eventually come to their end. They will come to a woeful end. And each one of these specific indictments of the Chaldeans is not something that we can just apply to our lives today, but it is a good reminder for us because while each one of these specific things may not be true in us, and the God of this universe may not be looking to bring all of this down upon us because all of that wrath was poured out on Jesus, it's a really good reminder to the Jews and then to us today what matters to God because each one of these magnified woes in the life of the Chaldeans who were just another generation away from being the worst people on the planet, those were really good reminders for the Jews because they were headed in that direction. And so the Jews could literally look and say, well, we're not as bad as the Chaldeans, but they also had to come to grips with their like, we're not as good as the Lord. The woes, they are for people who live by something other than faith. See, grasping for control isn't living by faith. Always wanting more isn't living by faith. Trusting in our own might isn't living by faith. 
numbing our pain isn't living by faith. Trusting things in this world other than God is certainly not living by faith. One of the fears that I have, oh, snakes, well, that's there too for sure, but another fear that I have is a society that just, that celebrates wickedness. And you don't have to go past my DVR to find out that we are a society that celebrates wickedness. Isaiah 5.20 gives us another woe. I said that real southern woe. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to us when we celebrate evil in this world. When we laugh at evil. When we're entertained by evil. When we buy products just because they promote evil. Woe to us. Another fear. Not just celebrating evil as a society, but what about minimizing our evil as a church? The whole, I may be bad, but I'm not that bad mentality. I'm guilty of thinking that, I shared this with our Minor Prophets class on Wednesday night, I'm guilty of being a person who probably thinks that Jesus could have just gotten a paper cut and that would have been enough to cover my guilt. Now, the reason he had to die on the cross was for the sins of the whole world, but one little drop would have covered me. Because we are so prone to recognize and admit and to say, yep, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that kind of sinner. The message to Judah was clear. Yeah, the Chaldeans are going to be taken. The woes are coming, but... Guys, that's the journey that you're on if you're not careful. So what do we do? First, we realize that God has given and continues to give us answers. And our response to that, first, has to be worship. That our response to the God of this universe who provides answers for us must be Worship. If you go back to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 12, you get a picture of that. It says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Habakkuk is saying, Okay, <coughs> I, I hear you, God. I know that the Chaldeans are coming, and I know that there are wicked people, and I don't understand that in that moment, so I'm going to proclaim to you who you are. You're from everlasting, you are the Holy One. You've got this under control. And, and I'm convinced that in that moment, Habakkuk was not telling God that which he did not already know. When we sing, you're a good, good father, we're not telling God something that he's forgotten. We're like, don't worry, God. You are a good father. Don't be down. It's who you are. Now, I may need to hear that sometimes from Susan when I'm having a rough day. Nick, that's okay. You're a good dad. You may have messed up in this moment. You may have lost your temper. You may have, I don't know, mixed it. It's okay, you're a good, like I need to be reminded that I, I'm, I'm okay at this. God doesn't need to be reminded that he's a good father. He knows he's a good father. But we need to be reminded that he's a good father. We need to be reminded that he's great. We need to be reminded that he's holy. And we come to him as an expression of our worship to sing songs about him and to him, to tell him how great he is. 
But ultimately, we're the ones that need to hear that. When we worship God, it helps us remember. We need reminders so that we won't forget. Deuteronomy 6.12, take care. It's another warning, lest you forget the Lord. Remember and don't forget. Like, what do we do when the God of this universe gives us answers? Well, we worship him and tell him, thank you for the answers, and then we remember them so that we don't forget that there's a God in this universe who continues to give us answers, and then finally we wait. We wait until one day when the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This isn't just a picture of what was going to happen to the Chaldeans. It's a picture of what was going to happen along the whole planet when one day every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And one day every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and that day hasn't come yet. Everybody on the planet is not professing Jesus Christ as Lord today. But one day they will. And until then, if we're righteous, we're called to live by faith. We do that by understanding that we serve a God who's alive and who hears us. Just like he heard Habakkuk, we can take we can take joy and pleasure and comfort and solace knowing that he hears us. And we can pronounce to him that our faith is not going to be contingent on only what we can see. Hebrews 11 defines faith as this. It's the reality of what is hoped for. It's the proof of what is not yet seen. If our faith is based on only what we can see, then you're wasting your time being here. You should be at brunch. Our faith is not based on what we can see. Our faith is based on knowledge of the glory of the Lord made display through Jesus Christ, his son. We, we recognize that we serve a God who's alive. He hears us. We can put our faith and our trust in him regardless of what we see or understand because he dwells with his people. In the Old Testament, the God of this universe dwelled his physical presence in a temple. And the reality of today is that the God of this universe, physical presence is in the temple of his people. Like, we are the body of Christ. And, and we are corporately and collectively and even individually a, a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And in Habakkuk 2.20, it says the Lord is in his holy temple. And if that's still true today, because I know that all scripture is still true today, his holy temple is us. And so what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to be silent in his presence. And that doesn't mean silent like, hey, listen, you can be seen but not heard. It means awe. It means complete and total trust. It means that we don't have any more questions. It means we don't have any more complaints because we've embraced all of the truths of God and we sit in a state of awe. You know, we never need to get ahead of God. But I've got to remember his truth so that I can stay one step ahead of the enemy who is after me I don't need to remember everything, but I need to remember the important things.
there's a God of this universe. He, he's alive. He hears me. My faith doesn't have to exist only on what I see and understand. Because he lives here. Because he lives here. And when he lives here, when his residence is here, we can literally be a people who trust when we should be afraid, who trust when it seems like he's silent, and who trust no matter what the obstacles are that God has put in front of us in this life. I'm praying for that kind of faith in my life. I'm praying for that kind of faith in all of our lives. Thank you, God, for being a God who is here, for being a God who hears us, and for calling us to be a people who give to you our trust and our faith, even when the woes seem big, and even when we don't understand. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the service and we want to encourage you to reflect on today's message throughout the week. Here at Rolling Hills, our goal is to raise up a community of disciples to be the hands and feet of Christ, and we hope that you will partner with us in doing so. How do you do that? Well, here are several ways. First, join us every Sunday, either online or at one of our physical locations. Join us as we worship our God and learn more about Him and His plan for us. Second, get connected. Check out our Next Steps page on the site to find out how you can engage with us further by serving or joining a community group. And lastly, we want to invite you to partner with us financially. You can do that online through the giving section of our site. All tithes and offerings go to support our ministries both locally and internationally, enabling us to impact lives and share God's Word. Again, we are so glad you joined us today. Have a great week.